You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of From Under the Rubble. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Today we're going to be talking about moral survival in our From Under the Rubble episode. And the question, the question really is, Dr. Fleming, when we have lost control of so many elements of culture, where you could say our people are not writing books, producing movies, creating music, uh, drawing, sculpting, we have to live in their world. The people who are, we could say, if they're not for Christ, they are against Christ. I think that's, that's quite clear. So when we have to live in their world, how do we live? Yeah, that's um, that's the question really sort of being posed by the premise of uh, this series. We we call it from under the rubble, echoing uh, what the Russian dissidents were saying in the 50s and 60s. That is, they knew they lived under an evil, oppressive political system and that they had to lead sort of underground lives in the in the ruins of uh, what had been Russian civilization. I think we're actually much worse off because at least a, at least a large percentage of the Russian people knew that they were being oppressed by an evil ideological system that hated everything they believed in. Whereas in America, most people who say vote conservative, vote Republican, even those people are really uh, completely oblivious of the uh, of the depth and significance of the revolution that has rolled over their world, and that we're living virtually uh, like uh, like. Uh, Imagine in some science fiction movie where the aliens from another galaxy land and and start uh, e- you know eating our babies and uh, and destroying everything that would give us uh, a reason to live and that's really I, I hate to sound sort of gloomy or apocalyptic but that's really where we are now that those who control the culture and control and culture is remember. It's not we're not talking just about books and movies. We're talking about the process that turns uh, uh, unformed babies and into responsible members of a cultural and and, uh, social tradition. So culture is it, it, it consists of all the means, the way we rear the way we discipline children, the, the kind of things we teach them in a school, the, the, the books, movies, radio, they, they may the sports they play. All of this is forming their character. And anywhere you look, <clears throat> those institutions that are forming the character of American children are making them stupid, lazy, immoral, dishonest. Uh, there is there is nothing good to see in the mainstream institutions, and so uh, the <laughs> the question we raise is then uh, how, how do we live like this? Is this like is this, for example, like living in the Roman Empire, like in in the uh, age of the Antonines, as one of a t- part of a tiny Christian minority? And the answer is yes and no, mostly no, because uh, sensible Christians in that age realized that people like Trajan and Marcus Aurelius were decent, hardworking people who were trying to defend the empire. They had they defended marriage, they defended honesty, they defended the innocent, that essentially the Roman Empire was the best thing you could hope for in, in, a, in the world, that is, in, in, in worldly terms. And so Christians thought that they should collaborate with that. Most Christians, there were a few dissidents, most Christians thought that you could go as far as you could reasonably go, up short of taking part in pagan uh, idolatrous cemetery, uh, uh, ceremonies. So our, unfortunately with us, we know that our government and and the instant the, the large institutions funded by big money that the whether it's time magazine or harvard university or cnn or fox news that all of these institutions are really uh belong to the enemy and uh, how 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 do we survive now sometimes uh you know there's a there's a there's a a comic that i advise you never to look at and that is uh, lewis black but Lewis Black is a very left-wing Jewish comedian, 
and he walks around grumbling all the time. You know, he hates it. He he thinks he lives in in, a, in an ultra conservative universe that's trying to persecute people like him. Well, and so we we do want to beware of falling into the curmudgeon syndrome, uh, and yet at the same time we have to uh, we have to maintain our moral, spiritual, and cultural independence. I mean, when I when we started talking about this show, Stephen, I was I was originally inspired by looking at the the response of the White House correspondents when uh, Donald Trump refused to go to their dinner and be insulted, and they they got a Muslim a Muslim journalist to take the lead in ridiculing and reviling the president of the United States. Now, I frankly don't care whether uh, you like you like Trump or hate Trump or find him a likable buffoon, whatever it is. In the same way, I really didn't care how people felt in this in this case about Barack Obama. But you know, they if, if you live in a commonwealth and you have duly elected magistrates and officials, you, I'm, I'm not saying you should revere or respect them as human beings, but there's a certain degree of dignity that should attach to the office. And to get an enemy of our cultural, our tradition, uh, everything, to get a Muslim to attack the president of the United States shows you wh- how degraded these people are. And, um, you know, we could uh, we could match horror stories uh, all day long. I saw, and in fact, I'll, be, I'll tell one, then you tell one. <laughs> I saw um, a couple of days ago, or a week ago, the, uh, the, the, the writer-filmmaker John Waters was in Chicago. Now, this is, this is a, a, an absolutely repulsive, stupid, degrading human being who, whose, whose best shots are always to find something that you really can't say openly in the year 2016, and then he'll say it in 2016 or 17, and everybody says, oh, what a daring genius, because he's always on the right side of history, whether it's homosexual rights, transgender rights, the right of people to eat excrement, whatever it is, anim- you know, animal sex, whatever, he's, 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 he's an advocate of it, because he's an advocate of whatever the historical trend is that will degrade the human race. And they treat the interviewer at the Chicago Tribune treated this guy like he was interviewing T.S. Eliot. He's a, a distinguished cultural guru. So, uh, What's your horror story, Stephen? <laughs> well, you know the 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 correspondence dinner. The the I, I when you look at these things, they're presented for us in consumption. On in in my world, uh, as one of these somewhere in between young people and old people that I am in Facebook. So Facebook will present a clip from the the the, the dinner, and sometimes the the jokes are are actually they're funny. But yeah. the, this entire exercise, you 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 find yourself wondering why it's happening. And I suppose I'm more bewildered, let's say, by the, the, the Al Smith dinner uh, that happens during uh, political season. Mm-hmm. That you mm-hmm. have these, you know, <laughs> the absurdity of, of anyone, any official representative of the Catholic Church, you know, welcoming anybody uh, who's a, a fan of murdering children um, to, be, to sat, sit on a stage with the cardinal. Uh, you you just you're bewildered by the situation. So I think part of well, it, is it bewildered. It tells me. you, yeah, it tells you everything you need to know about the cardinal in question. Hmm. I mean, it's one thing to sit down with people uh, who disagree with you. Uh, for example, people who really think that we should share uh, all the wealth that I should give, I should pay eighty percent of my income and in taxes to help people who don't feel like working. Right. Or like in the, in the Netherlands, they have people who say, I'm trained as a secretary, but I don't like people and they don't like me, so I'm on permanent disability. You read these cases all the time. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, well, uh, I'm a Jew, you know, and I, I understand uh, the Nazi position. And so I, here we are in America. I'm free. I could sit on a platform and and discuss with Hitler's representatives about the the relative efficacy of measures to eliminate the Jewish population from Europe. No, you can't do that. It's, uh, I, you know, there's this famous uh, sentence from Voltaire about I may not I may not agree with everything with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I, I, that's insane. 
people quote this all. They used, they used to quote it all the time. This shows what a, a rational, enlightened person you are. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You say you want to, to uh, rape my children and then eat them afterwards, and I'll defend your right to say that? You, you're a Nazi. I'll defend your right to free speech. You're a Bolshevik, and you wanted to wipe out members of the middle class and kill them? You know, no, I don't, I don't think so. Well, not only do we have no proof that Voltaire ever said that, but anyone yes. who knows the, the character of Voltaire would know that he wouldn't defend the, the right to anything. <laughs> I mean, uh, nobody's, it, nobody's right but his, but his own to some easy money. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, it's amazing how many people uh, have famous quotations, like Chesterton's great uh, line that people who don't believe, quit believing in God will believe in anything. Actually, he never wrote that. Mm. <laughs> it's a good summary of what he, what he, what he professed, but, and uh, was put together by some woman admirer who was just trying to describe what, he, what, what his view on that was. But, uh, yeah, uh, so much of that goes on. So but It's a Looney Tunes world, Stephen. I mean, look, you, t- you, you go to Hollywood. You know, and you know, right or left, it doesn't matter. You, you, you actually have Hollywood people making a huge amount of money, like Tom Cruise, who join this bizarre occult church of Scientology founded by a follower of Aleister Crowley, who described himself as the wickedest man in the world. Hmm. Although he sued the newspaper that quoted that line. We're talking about people who promoted every form of indecency and cruelty and inhumanity. And yet, poor dummies like John Revolting, the actor, you know, uh, proclaimed, and Greta Van Susteren. You know, all these these people watch Fox News. They were watching Greta Van Susteren, Scientologists. Because, see, Scientology... Is a is a is a is a magical cult that gives you power not just over yourself but over others. So unhappy, screwed up people uh, join the cult, feeling that they are rising above the rest of the human race. You should simply not. If you know somebody who joins such a cult, you you, you that, then you should cut off all ties with them because they're dangerous. So I suppose that's part of the question as well, Doctor Fleming. Is is when do we cut ties with the culture? Right, so we know that the the culture is poisonous. There there are certain things that we have to do on a daily basis that that uh, uh, expose us to poison. Right, whether it's uh, breathing city air sometimes, uh, yeah. or or dealing <clears throat> dealing in certain ways, we are we are exposed to poison. The question is, at what point do you call it off and say, look? Uh, there's 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 one thing about exposing myself to poison. It's another to to line up to ingest it. Where where do yeah, we? Or, what are the principles that inform where we draw that line? Yeah, the, the, okay. I have a series of sort of interlocking principles. Principle number one: most people, most of the time, in most ages of the world, let's just say ninety percent plus, are sheep. That is, they don't they have no opinions of their own. They don't think for themselves. They are formed by the culture they live in. So when people say really stupid things like about what they believe, this doesn't bother me too much. That is, I, I don't judge people so much on what they say they believe, because first of all, they, they often don't really believe it. And second of all, even if they sort of actively believe this nonsense, like I have uh, members of my family who make the most ridiculous statements about politics and culture and, and, and spend huge amounts of money on the trashiest kind of garbage art. And you realize, no, they're just sheep. This is what rich people do. This is what, what, what people do at all ages. Now, if you're, if you're born in 5th century Athens, then, gee, what is it everybody likes? Well, they like Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and the sculptures on the Parthenon. And, well, you know, they, 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 they live in a culture where the, 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 the brightest and most creative people are actually directing the cultural movement. And, and the Greeks are a very unusual people. But, you know, in any period of history, whether it's the it's uh, Republican Rome or the Amer- the early days of the American Republic, the, the the question is not so much what do the sheep do as what do the shepherds do. You know what it was. It last Sunday was a was a Good Shepherd Sunday, and they in the or is it two Sundays ago in the Catholic Church, 
And, you know, the, and the, the good, the image of the good shepherd, the, the image of, uh, of uh, Christ leading the sheep is a very important Christian image. So the first thing I always say is don't blame the sheep for being sheep. Uh, blame, blame the shepherds. And so focus one's hostility and animosity against, against, uh, against the bad, the bad shepherds. You know, the, um, the, we were speaking before the show started about the, uh, the, the movie Travesty of the Seven Samurai, that is the American movie, The Magnificent Seven. And it has, it has, of course, this immortal line uttered by the bandit, E.J. Wallach, where he says, um, if God did not, if not, if God did not want them to be sheared, why did he make them sheep? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's and, he, and he says it with this accent, too, you know. Oh yes, this New York Jewish version of a of a of a Mexican accent. Yeah. I, by the way, I love Eli Wallach not only in that role, but in he it, he did a lot of he did some spaghetti westerns where he's he's uh, quite wonderful. But uh, so so point number one: don't blame Aunt Maud for believing in global warming or for thinking that the latest trend in open marriage or, gee, isn't it the conservative principle that uh, you, sh- you should be free to marriage? Don't you believe in, in, uh, in getting married? And why are you objecting to same-sex marriage? These are, these are just the things that people have been uh, taught. And uh, it's important to distinguish between how, how they live <clears throat> and, and what they, they think they say. So uh, that's that, that. That is rule number one. Second rule is then to uh, to have nothing to do with the bad shepherds, the people who actually make Hollywood movies, the people who are, they probably your senator and congressman, uh, the people who are principals of the schools or professors in the universities. These people are to to the degree they can be conscious and knowing. They are conscious and knowing elements. Uh, of a of a revolution, and if you're against the revolution, then you should have <clears throat> as little to do with them as possible, because this revolution goes on. It's it's you know it's at least five or six hundred years old. In every generation, knocking down one and after another <clears throat> barriers to becoming subhuman beasts. So in five hundred years, we've gone from being <clears throat> we've gone from uh, say Dante and the world of Dante and Petrarch. To the world of uh, of Wiccanism and Scientology, uh, uh, and uh, the world of black magic and Satanism, accepted as everyday reality. You know, there's a <clears throat> a, a uh, in uh, a town called Belle Plaine, Minnesota, they had a war memorial with a cross. Well, of course, this had to be removed. So, oh, you know, I think it's a World War II memorial. Mm. Well, to get it restored, the local citizens <clears throat> were forced to accept a satanic memorial in the same cemetery. I mean, <laughs> Unbelievable. So, and um, there are all over the country. I, I don't know who's behind it. I suspect it may be uh, a Soros related institution, but all over the country, uh, after school uh, discussion groups for Satanists are opening up uh, at, at public high schools and middle schools. And the students aren't themselves uh, really the ones who are pushing this. And in fact, in some of these things, they have the group, but not a single member. So it is some sort of grown-up uh, organization that is uh, – and, and, and we know that Soros all around the world promotes paganism, Satanism, you know, witchcraft, zombies. He's always uh, – his people are always sticking the occult and the weird and the disgusting – into textbooks in like uh, East European countries <clears throat> that are happy to take the money. So, you know, you're, men- you're mentioning those uh, memorials, Dr. Fleming, and I, I, I can say that I'm constantly surprised. It's, to this day, I, I think of things like Stone Mountain. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, statue I remember seeing of a Confederate soldier when I was in North Carolina. There was a, a mass that was uh, being celebrated on... Uh, the USS, oh, not the USS, the battleship North Carolina. And there's this beautiful Confederate soldier, and underneath it said, for hearth and for home. And I don't know if you've been following recently, There's there's been a movement to remove some statues in New Orleans. I, I'm The reason I'm surprised is, 
I don't know how they've let us live in peace for so long. I mean, you knew they were coming for these things. Why, yes. why did we suffer under the delusion that they were going to let us keep things named after Lee, Jackson, uh, Jeb Stewart, uh, General Forrest, real heroes of America? Why did they think that they were going to let us keep our heroes? Why, why were we deluded enough yeah. to think that? This leads to uh, a second principle, which is that we have to acknowledge reality. The biggest problem to resisting the revolution has been uh, the naive Pollyannas known as conservatives who say, if we just hold the line here, and if we could just restore the status quo of 1988, we will be living in a golden age again. In the 80s, of course, we had to restore the Eisenhower years. And uh, in the Eisenhower years, we have to go back before the uh, the dream was to go back before FDR. This notion that somehow we should be nostalgic for the for the for the youth of our the years of our childhood, the culture of our childhood, because really we're just dealing with a lot of people who don't understand. For example, you hear it from uh, conservatives who say, you know, big business really doesn't understand that in promoting all of this socialism and, and transsexualism and all of this, they're ruining the world for their children and grandchildren, and they're undermining their capacity to hire a working class, etc. I mean, this is the, the big businessmen who promote this. They have some. They know what kind of world they want to live in, and it's not the it's it's not the world of. Uh, of Eisenhower, much less the world of Herbert Hoover. Uh, they are as much part of the revolutionary process as anyone else. And if you think that the Koch, that the, the Koch brothers are any different from this, that is the people who fund conservative uh, movements, uh, you're wrong. They are, they are formed from the same culture. They're cut from the same cloth. So rule number two is to give up this illusion that, oh, everything was fine until the 60s came along. Or more recently, everything was fine until Bill Clinton came along. No, everything wasn't fine in, in 1860. And everything, it, it has been a progressive revolution that destroys everything that makes our life meaningful and beautiful and fine. And I'm saying this, I'm speaking now as a materialist, not as a Christian. I'm just looking objectively at 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 at, hu at human happiness and, and putting aside the whole question of God and ultimate truth. Even in simple everyday material terms, we are we are living on a bestial level, and that has been the the fruit of, of this revolution. So rule number two Get out of your head the idea that it that oh well uh, the movies of the twenties and thirties were really okay somewhere somewhere because the culture hadn't gone anywhere near as far as as it had uh, as it has now and uh, by the way we should take take up this point in a minute there is much to be gained from looking at the half bad culture of the past hundred years, that is the pop culture, because to read a Western novel from the 1930s or see a Western movie from the same period or a detective movie, we're dealing with much nicer people, much, much more positive portrayal of human nature, much more positive portrayal of, of family and normal I institutions. So one, one, uh, I'm anticipating a point later on, but, but there, there are, there is some r room in even the, the best ordered family life for a, a, some nostalgia for in, more innocent earlier uh, cultural period of, of, uh, of uh, I don't know, of the uh, down to down to down to the mid 60s, perhaps uh, some of it, not now, most of it. I want to I want to come on to this, Dr. Fleming, but I want to make sure we have our, our, our numbering right. So number one, don't blame sheep for being sheep. Number right. two, have nothing to do with the bad shepherds. And I think you meant number three, acknowledge reality. That's right. Now, acknowledge the reality of an ongoing revolution that is constantly not so much devouring its children, uh, which the that you know revolutions always devour devour their children is a famous uh, proverbial uh, statement, but rather they devour their parents. 
because each generation is more radical than the last and tur- turns on the, you know, in the course of the French Revolution, the people who started it were mostly executed or exiled after a couple of years because they weren't radical enough. And this, this always happens. And to, to, to learn this lesson, the next <clears throat> principle is that is a positive one. And that is if you, you have to have a vision of how of, of, of a decent society and a decent culture, the, the best that our world has produced which includes the Greek and Latin classics and the, the medieval period and the and and uh, in, a, in our own world, uh, Shakespeare and Milton, the, uh, the our, our best art and music. And really, un, 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 until your children uh, have uh, have learned have learned uh, how to play you know, Bach on the piano, perhaps we don't have to worry about listening to the, the stupid filth of Glenn Miller and, uh, and other such, or Elvis Presley. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard Glenn Miller described as stupid <laughs> filth, but we might add that uh, to a surely you must be joking Dr. Fleming episode for, uh, for another time. But and by the way, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of, uh, of Benny Goodman and even the Dorsey brothers. But when you get down to the moronic level of Glenn Miller, it, it is degrading to the human soul to listen to <laughs> <laughs> would you would would you put the Andrews sisters in that same pile, Doctor Fleming? Yeah, but they're not they're not important. They're just they were just sort of fellow travelers. So but, so, uh, so so my, my my point is that it, it, to to get I think we're at number four. Point number four really is to begin with the best. In other words, and 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 by which I do not mean. Uh, the great books of the Western world, about a third of which are degrading filth. In fact, I'm going to start a series on our uh, on our website on Fleming Foundation, and the series will be on re- il- what books to eliminate. I used to do. There, there used to be a. There was a great uh, movie. I don't recommend it because it's immoral and, and Marxist. Called Alphaville, a, a French science fiction movie by Jean Luc Godard, and in it. Um, somebody said, well, what's this? And said, it's a, it's a, is it a phone book? Says the, the detective, uh, Lemmy Cochon. And, uh, says, no, it's a, it's the dictionary. But see, other dictionaries put words in. This dictionary take, is revised every week and we, we, we get words eliminated. Like, she says, I miss some of them, like friend and love and kindness. Those have been taken out of our out of a vocabulary. We need to do something like that to the list of the great books of the Western world. We need to kick out Adam Smith and John Locke and Voltaire and Rousseau and Montaigne, all of these horrible apostles of enlightenment. And why should for if you're going to go into intellectual history or you need to teach your kid how to how to fight the enemy? Sure. But it should be taught as enemy propaganda, not as as great books. So. You, you're, prop, you're reminding me. Education. You're reminding me, Doctor Fleming, that Father James Shaw, who I'm a I'm a big admirer of, he talks about the thousand good books as opposed to the hundred great books, and I yeah. think he he would probably be in line with what you just said. Yeah, and you know it's not. Excuse me, <clears throat> it's not that difficult. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do on our website is to build up this section called the autodidact which has reading lists, and then we're interlinking the reading lists with articles. Like I've started some articles on Robert Filmer, who was uh, the man that inspired uh, John Locke, because uh, uh, Filmer so hated, uh, Locke so hated everything Filmer was saying about the organic nature of society, and we need to restore these. So we've got stuff on Aristotle and Cicero, and we'll have things on Dante, and we've got Shakespeare and, 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 and the best. And obviously, there are many, many books to read on this subject and many lectures to hear, but the real point is to, is to expose yourself uh, and your children and your friends to the best. We have we have a monthly discussion at my house of just I'll pick a book and uh, all sorts of different books, some fiction, some poetry, some uh, political philosophy, some whatever, and we read the book and discuss it. And it gets people in the habit. These are not intellectuals. These are people, mostly businessmen and housewives. It gets them in the habit of realizing, you know, there's nothing really all that dangerous about reading Shakespeare. It can be done. We can read, they can read translations of Sophocles and they complained about Plato. That was the only person I had a, a complaint against, which, uh, which astonished me. 
but we've read Homer together. And so uh, a little bit of encouragement like that to children and to your friends and neighbors and to yourself and uh, is, a, is a good thing. Now, to be fair, Dr. Fabian, when you say Shakespeare, you don't mean Romeo and Juliet. No, well, grown-ups should read Romeo and Juliet, but I don't think adolescents should be taught in school, although as they were when I was a kid, taught in school about two people who defy their parents, have a love affair in their early teens, and then when things don't work out, commit suicide. I mean, this is like, talk about ripped from the pages of today's <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> this is, teenagers should not be taught that suicide is an option for uh, when they have an unhappy love affair. Well, well to be fair, it would, it, the updated version, Dr. Fleming, Romeo would not be certain whether he was a man or not. Uh, that would True. probably be part of the story. Maybe it would be, uh, uh, maybe, maybe it would be uh, Romeo and Julio. <laughs> <laughs> When you're when you're discuss uh, when you're discussing these uh, these greats, begin with the best. Are you saying that we should simply just step aside from from what's going on? So instead of moderation in television, no television. Instead of moderation with movies, no movies. Moderation with modern music, no modern music. Some might say, you know, Dr. Fleming, that's a bit extreme. But it sounds in a certain way you're pushing this. I'm pushing it up to a point, and because this gives me now, you know, there on the one hand, you know, when Plato wrote the Republic, he banished the poets because he, which is, you, you can't do that if you're a Greek, you can't quit reading Homer and, and, and Sophocles, but he, he banished the poets because he thought they didn't have a clear head about things. They were, they may have intuited many true things, but they weren't perfect. And uh, later on, when he came to write The Laws, which is a less brilliant but much more sensible book, even though it has some silly things in it, uh, when he writes The Laws, the two old, the men, are, old men are talking about it, and they said, well, of course, <clears throat> if we were to try to design a perfect society, it would only be fit for gods and demigods, or we would say a society for angels, and not, not, not for human beings. So on the one hand, we want to have the, the sort of the Plato Republic view of what would be perfect, but we, we're going to have to compromise. And so well, there, there are because, you, first of all, you can't live on that high level all the time. And second of all, uh, you'll end up degrading the very art you profess to admire. So uh, uh, I remember once I almost got into a fistfight in college because somebody was playing uh, Mozart's Last Symphony over the crummy speaker system in our college cafeteria. And I think this is, first of all, the speaker system is, is woven, terrible. And second of all, you shouldn't be having, having lunch listening to a masterpiece. There's music. And similarly, when, 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 when uh, I have the uh, occasional cocktail before dinner or a glass of wine once every couple of years, the, um, <laughs> we, we play things like George Shearing. And uh, his recordings with Mel Torme, or we play, in other words, a serious, competent, popular music done by people. And, in, in, you know, in George Shearing's case, he was blind. So that's why he didn't become a classical pianist, because, you know, he, he, he said, you know how long it takes to read a score in Braille? Hmm. And his last couple of years, he spent endlessly playing Bach uh, before he died. So we're dealing with people with uh, with talent and intelligence and taste and musical skill and yet playing music on a level that you can hold a conversation still. And uh, and, and I would say the same thing about a lot of uh, a lot of popular music you know, of the uh, but mostly before I was born. People like uh, people like Benny Goodman and some of this uh, or Ella Fitzgerald. So a lot of uh, and the same thing holds true of fiction. There's a lot of light fiction you know uh, i'm not a fan of agatha christie but there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of fairly light uh english detective writers there are western writers there's stuff that you can read like you can't sit down and read uh, virgil before going to bed your your eyes are falling and uh there was a time when i could read latin so well that that actually wasn't much of a wasn't a, a problem today it's a problem so, I mean, I, I read light history or, or uh, I read, I, uh, lately I read a lot of, um, to practice my Italian, I read Italian, uh, they call them gialli. That is a giallo is a, was a yellow, it means a yellow, it's, a, it's a, a paperback novel with a yellow cover, meaning it was a, a, a detective novel. Hmm. 
Okay. And so there, there are all sorts of levels. So once we, we, we have our rule about, you know, concentrate, and especially with, as an educator, your education and the education of your children, concentrate on things that are the best. But then also you do realize that we, we have to settle for much of our life for second best because we can't live on that level of intensity. And, uh, and it's, and it's not fair to the artists or writers or, or philosophers. Uh, it's not fair to make them background noise or, or to, to pay attention when we're tired. So to the extent that we, we want to entertain ourselves, to go into an alternate universe is what I'm suggesting. You can read Booth Tarkington novels, for example, who I think is a, the, maybe the best American novelist uh, ever. And you read Booth Tarkington novels and you're entering a different universe. You're entering a world where boys go to dancing class and people have, and even though they may be rotten, they have nice manners. And it's a portrait, a portrait of good and evil and uh, nice and not so nice. It's entertaining. Uh, apart from a few really great books like the Magnificent Ambersons and the Turmoil, it's uh, uh, Tarkington is uh, is usually pleasant and light and frothy, and you are you're you are being. I, I, by the way, this is stuff I read when I was growing up by, by accident and read it all over and over. So you, you you become a different person as a result of of this world you're entering into, and you could do the same thing with a lot of films. A lot of and uh, and uh, popular music. In other words, the, the, you you can enter into a world that, although not radically different from our own, and this includes people who are writing to no, novelists writing today. And uh, I wish it included movies. The only movies I can think of that are any good are they are um, there's some French movies are, are like one or two a year are often quite quite entertaining and and comparatively harmless. Did you ever see uh, the with a? I forget the French title. It's called with a with a friend like Harry. No, it's a wonderful movie. It's a sort of a remake of Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, but a good deal more dark. <laughs> I was going to say and, uh, Hitchcock's adaptation is definitely less dark than the original libretto. Yes, I well, saw. She I saw. Is, uh, oh God, what a horrible person she was! What's her name? Uh, the the novelist. Um, she wrote. She also wrote uh, the talented Mister Ripley. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you want to talk about uh, perverted. Yeah, well, she was a dark person, uh, bisexual and uh, had... Patricia Patricia Highsmith? Yeah, Patricia Highsmith. I read an interview. One of her best friends said, yeah, she was the meanest B-I-T-C-H I I ever met. That was her (laughs) best friend. <laughs> so, uh, so with a friend, with a friend, I do recommend. Uh, there are a couple of French films that come out. Like, with a friend like Harry is very funny, and it has, it has. You know, similarly, it's it's got a guy who says, "Okay, I'll I'll kill my girlfriend. No, you kill my girlfriend. I'll kill your wife, and then you'll be free to write the books you can write because I know you're a genius." Hmm. And he's you know, and and up until that point, you see that the um, the hero is sort of falling for the idea that he is a genius and marriage and children have retarded him and now he's just an ad ad writer and executive and and he he hasn't been able to have this fulfilling life of the romantic genius and when finally he realizes what's at stake he ends up I, I won't give you the ending but he ends up turning out quite good and heroically good so it, 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 I, I don't know how the French get away with mo- making that because it, the, we can't make a movie like that in America, other than uh, the Robert Duvall's movie, the um, the uh, the Apostle hmm. is a is a very that was uh, a great one. It's, yeah, it's entertaining. It's it, it takes you know maybe seeing somebody beaten to death with a baseball bat on the on the softball field. Uh, in front of children is not a is not an uplifting scene, but the movie makes a, the movie makes a lot of sense and it makes sense out of our world. And the problem with turning your back completely and not trying to find some halfway remedies in our world is that then we've given up. We've given up one of the things that 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 all the arts do is to is to is to is to make sense of the world we live in. And uh, and so I think one of our jobs should be to try to find those films, uh, uh, in, uh, those TV shows, those works of fiction, those works of art. Which at least you could say uh, will help help the help the uh, person who reads them or looks or listens help them to uh, to fight against the forces of darkness that are closing in. But some might say, Doctor Fleming, why not be like the Amish? I mean, there's there's not that same moral corruption running through there. 
communities as we have out in the modern world, or are they onto something? Well, they are and they aren't. You know, in the first place, on a practical level, they you, they lose a huge percentage of uh, their children. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, they're they they really are a cult. It's not so much a Christian uh, sect as a as a real cult. And that, you know, in other words, there's such mind control exercised in a, in, by way of gossip and envy and pettiness over the lives of the members of the community that it's something – it's not a human way to live. It's, it's imagine you took the worst elements of, an, of a life in an African village and then you, you gave it a kind of a draconian system of enforcement. And uh, so it, it's not good. And then, of course, these children go off for the year. Uh, when they, they reach a certain age, they go off and go wild for a year or two. They take drugs. They fornicate. They do it. And then when they get it out of their system, they're supposed to come back. And, and uh, a, a disappointing proportion do come back. So there's, there's, and they have no culture. They have no, they, it's not that they have an alternative culture. They have no culture. Hmm. They quit. Their, their kids quit, quit school in, in sixth grade. Which in, in American terms is probably good because you wouldn't want them going <laughs> to our schools. But really, they have no literature, no music, no art, and they they live one step above the beasts. And so now, uh, obviously, <clears throat> when you suggested we could take a kind of Amish uh, uh, approach or some some not very bright people are referring to the Benedict option or the Benedict strategy uh, – or as if we could live, as if married men and women and their children could live like Benedictine monks in the early days. And this is really not. It's it's a useful strategy to look at to see wh- what happens when your world collapses, because an important part of the uh, of uh, what Saint Benedict did, and also uh, Cassiodorus down in southern Italy, and uh, a lot of the institutions that were formed in. Cl- in the Catholic West at that time, they were a, re- a response not to a pagan world, but to the destruction of the Roman world, you know, because it, w- it simply wasn't safe. Their ed- education was collapsing. People weren't copying manuscripts for libraries. No, you know, no, the, the, the clergy were ignorant. The, the last half-educated person in Rome for several hundred years is, uh, is Gregory the Great. And uh, then you get a lot of Greeks because Greeks from southern Italy were better educated than uh, than Italians. So um, I think realizing that we we can't live in the world as worldlings, but we have to be, as the saying goes, in, in the world but not of the world, which is something like what the early Christians before Constantine had to do. We know from the early apologists, uh, from various the letter of Aristides, the the, the various various apologetic writings in the first say hundred years of the church, they explicitly claim we are not freaks. We don't dress funny. We don't we don't have weird ceremonies. We are good neighbors and good citizens. But uh, as, as I, I think it's the apology of Aristides, he says, there are only two things that make us different from our neighbors. Uh, men don't have sex with men, and we don't kill our babies. Hmm. Hmm. Would we could say that about Christianity today? <laughs> it's, so the point is to, yes, we have to draw, but see, but that they lived in a comparatively wholesome world. We, we do not. So they could say, well, we can read Virgil because they could see that Virgil is a kind of pagan prophet. You could see it. Is it there's a moral order, a social order, a spiritual order. You could see that Vir, Virgil's mind is leading you from the merely material into a higher realm of nobility and honor. Uh, and uh, and uh, educated Christians, there weren't too many in the early days, educated Christians could see that. And quickly, of course, there's never a period that Virgil is not read until our own day. That is, throughout the Middle Ages, the monasteries have Virgil and Cicero and, and a lot of Ovid. This stuff never goes away. And uh, so, the, so that which keeps the flame of civilization alive. Now, to that extent, if we're going to talk about a monastic option, yes, keeping, keeping the flame of, 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 of this civilization alive through little institutions, through schools and homeschooling consortiums, and, uh, and uh, through little publishing projects, 
And so there are <clears throat> small there small are websites my, and podcasts. Small web, yeah, which by the way we um, which always need we always need the the help and support of faithful followers and believers. So uh, this is uh, th- I think. Taking them as the example, and by the way, to, to, to look at on the, the the Christian moral plane, um, you know, a lot of pe- I've talked to a lot of people today, a lot of very good uh, good Catholics and good Protestants, and they think that taking part in angry anti-abortion uh, uh, demonstrations is a good thing. That even they're justified in breaking laws, you know, destroying des- destroying property, invading invading private property, break- breaking good laws in order in order to protest uh, a bad law that allows people to uh, kill their children and allows doctors to make money killing children. But, you know, what did the, in the, in the early days of the church, of course, uh, it, uh, abortion was frowned upon and doctors weren't allowed to do it, but infanticide was not illegal. That is at least exposure of children. Murdering, murdering a child that you had, uh, you had actually picked up and acknowledged, that, that, that was a crime. But, um, uh, unless the child really did something bad and you held a family council and the family council said this child has raped his mother and he just, and, you know, he's 16 and he deserves to be put to death. But these are extremely rare occasions. But we do have expo- the exposure of infants and they did not march on the Praetorium. They did not send angry letters to Nero. They didn't, sign, did peti- they? They didn't sign petitions, Dr. Fleming, I'm shocked. No. No, and they didn't have, and I, I really doubt that there's a single sermon on this. We have this young priest in our church, and for we have four sermons in a row on why you shouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Now you look, this is the traditional Catholic parish, you know, this is, they're doing the Tridentine Mass. And you look around, there's not, there's not a single uh, uh, pro-abortion, pro-Hillary Clinton person in the church. Why do we have to hear this? Uh, but, so what did they do? Interestingly, the one person I've read who seems to grasp, that is one modern person, he's dead now, but the, the, the Presbyterian cult leader, Rusas Rushduni, you know, who was a brilliant man, but also very weird in a lot of what he taught. But Rushduni said, what did they do? They, they set good examples. And so people said, gee, I'd sort of like to be a Christian. They have such good families. They're such nice people. And they didn't kill their own children. And they prayed. They prayed for the conversion of the world. Well, isn't that, isn't that really a more creative, uh, a, a more positive way about going through this? People, we don't, I find it unusual. We have all these marches against abortion. We don't, we don't have marches against murder. We don't have marches against armed robbery. And we don't have marches against the U.S. government murdering people all around the world. Let, 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 let try to have, we, keeping your moral bearings in when, What's that famous Kipling poem? When, when you, if you keep your head, head when all the world, when everyone around you is losing theirs, mm-hmm. if if yes, then then the conclusion is then you're a man. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's time really for Amer- for American men to man up and drop the hysteria, because partly what fuels this hysteria. On the on the abortion question. By the way, I'm, I'm unequivocally on on this question that it is un is it is an unmitigated evil without any excuse to be made for it. But there we're we're pretending as if people didn't have abortions a hundred years ago. We're pretending that people haven't done this, haven't murdered their children, because America is a special place. We're an exceptional place. We do, we're a God-given. We're like the children of Israel entering the promised land. And we have this special promise given to us as Americans. And that we're going to show the world how the, the right way to live. All of this is pernicious nonsense. We are like every other nation in history. And we've, we're better than some. We're much worse than some others. We, we do the best we can. We muddle through. But if you start thinking that we have a divine mission to make the world a better place, you end up like John Brown, a mass murderer. And if you this want very morally, very dangerous. If you want to hear more of Dr. Fleming's uh, arguments on this point, you can pick up a copy of The Morality of Everyday Life, uh, which was published in 2007 in paperback. Unfortunately, we do not have any at the foundation to sell, but I can see you can find them on Amazon still. So for around uh, $25. Or or on Kindle for $5. Uh, 
I didn't even know there was a Kindle. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, now I know what's going on in my Kindle. <laughs> uh, well, Doug, funny. Uh, we've gone through quite a bit here. Is there is there anything that you you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about today? I think um, the the, the la- I'd like to leave you with one last principle, which is from a pagan poet, Nil Desperando. That is, do not despair over nothing. You know, things happen that are very bad. We live in a very evil world. This is not the first time when we've had faithless uh, people leading uh, all the major churches. Uh, It's uh, the the, the Renaissance Italy presents a spectacle that perhaps it's better that Catholics didn't know about. Um, There have been periods when it was much more difficult to live. And we we poo-poo, oh, they didn't have death metal rock and roll. By the way, it's the phenomenon of Christian death metal rock and roll is very uh, interesting. But, well, if, if Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan were frolicking across your land, murdering 70% of the population and enslaving the rest, you would find it a good deal more difficult to sit at home and listen to recordings of Mozart while you're perusing Dante. That is, with the, the, for the time being, we have the capacity to lead wonderful lives with our children, our, our spouses, well, if we're a Christian, <coughs> Christian will be one spouse, uh, with, our sp- <coughs> with our spouse, with, uh, with our friends, and, uh, and, to, and to enjoy all the good things produced in other ages and, and to try to see what good there is in our own. Uh, there have many, many people in the history of the world are not this lucky. So, nil desperandum and count your blessings. Well, but my marketing brain wants to go back over these principles and, and try to tighten them up, Dr. Fleming. So, number one, don't blame sheep for being sheep. Number two, shun bad shepherds. Three, acknowledge the reality of the revolution. Four, begin with the best. And five, despair not or, or let not your heart be troubled. That's right. Well, thanks as always for your time, Dr. Fleming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.